Today's episode is brought to you by Madeline Lucas's Thirst for Salt, a debut novel that Leslie Jameson calls a love affair so richly and attentively imagined it carries the grace and gravity of memory itself. A magnetic and unforgettable story of desire and its complexities and a powerful reckoning with memory, loss, and longing Thirst for Salt reveals with stunning, sensual immediacy the way the past can hold us in its thrall, shaping who we are and what we love, says Heidi Julevitz. Lucas is a brilliant conjurer of emotional and bodily longing. I felt, while avidly turning the pages, that briny tightness of the skin as though I'd sat in the hot sun after an ocean swim. Thirst for Salt is a sensuous, visceral debut. Thirst for Salt is out on March 7th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. You'll notice that during the outro music of every episode, I thank many people from Tin House, including one of Tin House's publicists, Jay Nichelle. And Jay has a book coming out this month, a poetry collection called God Themselves. And I wanted to point you to it, not because she needs my help, far from it. It's actually wild to think she's a publicist for my show because as a poet and poetry slam champion, she is deeply loved. The video of her performance of Friends with Benefits has 1.7 million views and counting. Many of her poems have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. Nevertheless, I wanted to do my small part to alert you to her debut, a celebration of queerness, blackness, and love, a book divided into three sections, everything, everywhere, and love. In the email to supporters, I'll link to some of her performances and also to her TED Talk, Reclaiming Negative Labels Using Poetry, and to the recent Slow Down podcast episode where Major Jackson discusses and reads one of Jay's poems from the upcoming collection called Jesus Saves, which indeed includes Jesus in a coffee shop with his everything bagel. And of course, I will include a link to the book, God Themselves, out on March 14th. Check it out. It's no exaggeration that today's episode with Monica Yoon is epic, touching on everything from Greek and Korean mythology and history to the 1992 L.A. uprising and the murder of Latasha Harlins, to the ongoing unfolding history of anti-Asian sentiment and violence in the United States. But the thing I was most interested in exploring with Monica was her notion of writing a poetics of difference versus a poetics of authenticity and how to write into the traumas and vulnerabilities of one's people, but in a way that doesn't lose sight of the structural that doesn't lose sight of how a specific group is positioned structurally within society 
and the implications of that, both in the world and how we make our art when we acknowledge or ignore this aspect. Longtime listeners likely already know this is something I'm attracted to, these questions, whether my conversations with Padrigo Tuma and Darren Nagrifa, which both touch on the history of the Irish in Ireland versus the history of the Irish diaspora in relation to colonization, or with the Moroccan writer Abdelataya looking at questions of colonization in North Africa, but also blackness and anti-blackness, or the more recent of the two conversations with Viet Thanh Nguyen, which would make a great companion listen to today's episode, as both of these conversations look at the racial triangulation of Asian Americans. And I at least aspire to place myself in these conversations as a Jewish American and how these questions reflect on the positioning of Jews. This question of how we can attend to our own lived and ancestral trauma while also accounting for, rather than alighting or erasing, the stories of other communities that we live among and may be structurally positioned above, so to speak, is one I'm compelled by as a writer myself and also simply as a person in the world. And you'll notice today that all the more craft-like questions, questions of poetics, of tone and form, bring us back to questions of self and identity, the individual in relation to the collective, one's community in relation to the larger one. Because Monica is continually doing this herself in this book, From From. For the bonus audio, Monica contributes a reading of two truly electrifying long poems. The first of which, one which gave me chills, was commissioned by the Boston Review for their anthology, Poems for Political Disaster, written in response to the election of Donald Trump. And the second is a draft of a poem, one she has never shown or read before, one that might have been part of this book as part of the sequence of parable of the magpie poems, but hasn't quite come together in her mind, even if we might beg to differ. The bonus audio, which includes readings from everyone from Dion Brand, Nikki Finney, Natalie Diaz, Kava Akbar, Alice Oswald, Rosemary Waldrop, and Jory Graham, is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode, and every listener supporter has the opportunity to help guide who we invite in the upcoming years to the show. On top of that, there are a lot of other potential goodies, from writing consultations to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving books months before they're available to the general public. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Monica Yoon. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. 
had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet Monica Yoon, is a graduate of Princeton University, pursued creative writing as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and a law degree at Yale University. In her work as a lawyer, with a specialty in media and entertainment law, she represented none other than Beyonce in a contract dispute. But ultimately, Yoon moved to a focus on public interest election law. She was the inaugural Brennan Center Constitutional Fellow at New York University Law School, worked as an attorney in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice, and directed their campaign finance reform Money in Politics project. She was a member of the bar of the Supreme Court, co-lead counsel for defendant interveners in McComish v. Bennett before the Supreme Court, and has litigated campaign finance and election law issues in state and federal courts throughout the nation. She's appeared on PBS NewsHour, Hardball with Chris Matthews, and Bill Moyers Journal, was the editor of Money, Politics, and the Constitution Beyond Citizens United, and has testified before the Senate and House Judiciary Committees. While Yoon has long ago left law, for quite a while her life as a poet and as a lawyer overlapped and her trajectory as a poet is no less impressive. A 1998 Wallace Stegner Fellow in Poetry at Stanford, her debut collection, Barter, arrived in 2003 with Grey Wolf. Not since Plath has poetry so taut and so dangerous graced a first book, said D.A. Powell. I found this incredible collection disconcerting in its spectatorship and breathtaking in its beauty, said Claudia Rankin. Her 2010 collection, Ignatz with Four-Way Books, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and of which poet and critic Stephanie Burt proclaimed, No poet of Yoon's generation has made more demands on herself and none has done more in her art. Her third book, Black Acre, long-listed for the National Book Award, shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Penn Open Book Award, and the Kingsley Tufts Award, and winner of the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America, was named a Best Poetry Book of 2016 by the New York Times and Washington Post, and prompted Linda Gregerson to proclaim Yoon as, quote, quite simply one of the two or three most brilliant poets working in America today. Monica Yoon has taught at Bennington College, Warren Wilson Low Residency MFA Program, Columbia University, New York University, Sarah Lawrence, her alma mater, Princeton, and at the University of California, Irvine. Since her last book, she won a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Levinson Prize from the Poetry Foundation, and has been a member of the curatorial group of Claudia Rankin's Racial Imaginary Institute. We're lucky to have Monica Yoon today for her much-anticipated new book of poetry from Grey Wolf, entitled From From. Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, 
speaks of the long prose poem in the book entitled In the Passive Voice, calling it a virtuosic performance addressing the challenges of maintaining racial solidarity under capitalism. Dorothy Wong adds, This powerful book is without a doubt her best, written during the COVID pandemic, a time punctuated by unrelenting and visible acts of anti-Asian violence. It speaks directly and unsentimentally of racism and misogyny while still retaining Yoon's characteristic style. The familiar references to Greek myth feel catalytic and urgent. And finally, Kathy Park Hong says, From From is equal parts comic and tragic, clinical and wrenching. Monica Yoon's parables and studies are devastating meditations on the sadism of whiteness and the abjection of racial containment. Yoon examines how complicity gestates and develops, how unexamined desire and fear lead to the hatred of the other and oneself, while yanking up the roots of words to unearth the hidden biases built into the way we speak. Yoon's strongest work to date, From From, is unforgiving and horrifying, singular and absolutely extraordinary. Welcome to Between the Covers, Monica Yoon. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start with the notion of doubleness. There is the obvious linguistic doubleness of the title, From From, which I suspect is linked to a doubleness of identity, as I imagine someone saying to you, where are you from? And you saying, Houston, and them saying, but where are you from from? Sort of situating you, someone visibly not white, in two places or in neither place. But we also have seven poems in the collection that are studies of two figures, whether Midas and Marigold, Echo and Narcissus, or Orpheus and Eurydice. And many of these poems are the first poems that we encounter in the book. They're our way into the book. Your poetry doesn't make me think of Jory Graham's poetry, but I did think of her book, The End of Beauty, because of the preponderance of two-figure poems in that collection. For instance, in her book, Self-Portrait as Hurry and Delay, Self-Portrait as Apollo and Daphne, Self-Portrait as the Gesture Between Them, and even the non-Self-Portrait poems, Pollock and Canvas, Ravel and Unravel, The Lovers. And it feels like this is true for From From, too. And I was hoping we could start here with why you are interested in the study of two figures as a frame or form and and why you wanted this to be the archway through which we enter the collection as a whole. The study of two figures poems were new for me, I think, in two ways. You mentioned one, which is the doubleness of them, which for me becomes the space of complication. I like you bringing Jory into the equation because, of course, she's been a massive influence. And her idea, you know, self-portrait is the space between them, right? What is that space? How is that space activated? How does that space introduce a complexity that isn't available in a spotlight on a single figure? Uh, You also mentioned my work with Claudia Rankin, and, you know, Claudia is always interested in the way racial imaginaries, various other imaginaries Uh, influence dialogue, influence the relationship between people. Now, in some of the studies of two figures, 
notably the first one, the two figures don't intersect in any kind of sphere except for this constructed sphere of Asianness. But I was interested in what happens structurally if you throw two figures into the mix. And that kind of gets me to the second part of what I think the study of two figures poems are doing. The Pacifaisado poem was the first of those poems that I wrote, and it took a really long time to figure out what I wanted to do with it. I'm not someone who comes to a poem with an a priori conception of form. I've been trying to move away from knowing what the end of the poem would be. So I end up in this situation where I'm sort of trying to feel myself into, I think, not so much form as tone. I think of form as subsidiary to tone. Tone is what drives for me. And so I was thinking, okay, well, here I am, you know, I'm this lawyer, as you've (laughs) extensively detailed. (laughs) And there are various registers that are uh, more or less familiar in lyric verse. The sort of power language of the lawyerly analytic is not one of them. And somehow I feel that that's a tone that would be appropriate to deploy here in its rigidity and in its artificiality. So what happens if you start with this material of tone and you start building something out of it? And it's not, you know, it's not a rock. It's not a thing of clay, right? It's not, it's not malleable. It's somewhat hollow. It's unreliable. And so what happens if you start building a step and then you build another step that you want to meet it and you end up with this kind of double staircase made out of these very thin boards that are kind of holding up only through the rigidity of their assertion, right? Only through the rigidity of their false authority. And then what happens when those staircases start doubling back on each other? How do you use tone to generate structure? And then what does that do? And then how does the thing become recursive? And then what does that mean? And so I was just kind of watching that process happen um, in constructing. I think the first of those poems was the most palpable to me because that's when I was, I think, figuring this out and saying, okay, I've just laid down this plank. And what does this plank have on it? Well, it has Asianness on it. What does that do? Well, let's mention that and see where that gets us. Well, Asianness brings race into the poem. Well, what does bringing race into the poem do? Well, that gets us to here. And, you know, I, I just kept moving step by step. Uh, from that and then you know and then the material itself will create its own resonances i don't need to do that work well you've had a long-standing interest in greek mythology long before this collection and many of these two-figure poems engage on one side with a greek figure you've talked about how greek myth has been an obsession of yours since you were a child that if someone had asked you in elementary school what you'd want to be you said a professor of greek mythology And you've said that in some ways these myths are more constitutive of the way you process the world than the Catholicism you were raised with. But both in your interview with Dorothy Wong at Bomb Magazine and explicitly in the poems themselves in this new collection, the engagement with Greek mythology isn't just because they're rich, evocative stories that have subsequently influenced so much of culture and art and your own life, but But returning to these two figures, I think of Emily Wilson's translator's note to the Odyssey, where she talks about 
the Greek coinage of the word xenia, their concept of hospitality, and also xenophobia, that Greekness is defined in relation and often in opposition to the other, to the non-Greek. And like Wilson, who suggests that the rituals of xenia are employed as a means to extend empire, you look at Greekness in relation to both their own colonial aspirations and their racial self-conception. And I was hoping maybe you could talk into that more for us, the, the functional role Greekness is playing in From From. Yes, and I love that you're bringing Emily Wilson into the room because talking about that last poem, the poem ends with a translation, my own translation of the word pacifae. Uh, Emily Wilson is someone I know very slightly from uh, from Yale. And so I kind of bounced it off her. I'm like, is this legit? Can I say that pacifae means this? And she said, absolutely. So I felt validated, I guess. But But I also think that she has a deep understanding of the context and function of Greek myth is not like these figures were always white statues. In fact, they never were. That was not their function. Um, I think the Trump presidency made me think a lot about the myths that people tell themselves and the centrality of the idea of nation or national identity to myth-making. And that was true for the Greeks as it has been for many other cultures. What is Greekness? And a lot of Greekness is defined as as Greekness became more complicated, became more widespread, as the Greeks started establishing colonies, and as they started worrying about influences such as the uh, worship of Kybele or the Egyptian mythos coming into Greek religion, a lot of Greekness starts to become defined in opposition to an Asian other. And the myths become somewhat obsessed with thinking about this idea of Asia. Asia is a Greek word. We treat it as if it's somehow more neutral than the word oriental. It's the same thing. Asia for the Greeks meant that place over there where we have colonies. And the content of what is in that box that is called Asianness has changed. They were referring to Phrygia, to Turkey, to parts of present-day Georgia, to Armenia, and now we think of the focus of Asianness has shifted more east and southeast and south. But that idea was always there. And a lot of the figures that we consider to be taboo or dangerously alluring and sexual and magical and dangerous in that way, the, you know, the witch queens, the Trojans, the Thebans, the, you know, all of the sites of taboo fascination for the supposedly rational uh, Greeks are Asian and would have been understood as Asian. I wanted to ask about the construction of Asianness in From From in relation to your own self-conception over time. Long before this book, you've talked about growing up deracinated, that your parents who came before the 1965 Immigration Act were an early wave of post-Korean War immigrants who were very much striving for assimilation. Your parents seen model minority as a positive thing, their social circle being other Korean engineers from the same elite private high school in Korea, that your brother didn't learn to use chopsticks until college, that you grew up in a white part of Houston where you'd be the only Asian person in your classes, and perhaps most notably growing up in the South with a racial binary where you were either not white 
or not black and your family chose not black. I know you've engaged with the feeling of being deracinated before this book in multiple ways, maybe most notably in your quote-unquote Twinkie poem, Gold Acre, from your last book. But if I didn't know your history, if I didn't know this about you, if I came to From From ignorant of it, this book feels like it is the work of someone very assertively racialized with a self-conception of their own identity in relation to race that feels very nuanced and dynamic. The book very provocatively and actively places us in a racial dynamic regardless of the race of the reader right away, which sort of begs the question for me about the story or journey for you. For instance, when you say in the acknowledgments, thank you to my fellow members of the Racial Imaginary Institute for their profound influence on my thinking about race and art making, I notice myself wanting to construct a narrative about how you've come to this point of writing from from, which feels like a fully embodied and, and confident engagement with really difficult questions of being Asian in America. Um, not that you weren't confronting race before, you were, I think, but it feels something about this feels different to me than even your most recent book before this. I think that's right. I think I was doing a lot of self-searching, both just as a sign of the times, uh, partially as a result of the birth of my son, who was mixed race, and partially as part of my curatorial work for the racial imaginary. In thinking about the construction of my identity, you know, it's very hard to write about an empty space without filling it. And, you know, deracinated identity for me is an empty space. It's an empty space that is contained in a shell. And the shell is the interface with whiteness, right? The interface with whiteness, also the interface with other racial identities, causes you to be defined as Asian without the, you know, without the guts of it, right? Without the deep connection to homeland or belonging that I feel that other people have access to and that I never have. Um, you know, growing up in the South, people um, in ways that are deeply binary and deeply racialized, nonetheless have a connection to place to homeland uh, that I have never felt and also have kind of senses of community that, you know, I experience only in very small ways. And so thinking about how to write that shell in a way that makes both the external pressures and the internal emptiness somewhat palpable was, I guess, for me, the big challenge of this book. I mean, writing a book about deracination is very different from writing a book about identity. It's what people, for example, in talking about the work of Teresa Hakim Cha, um, will refer to as the poetics of difference versus the poetics of identity. Um, identity meaning sameness, meaning I'm the same as these other people. That's not a feeling I feel very often. Well, the first poem, which you set apart from the others, the one you've referred to, study of two figures, Pasifae and Sato. Even though it is a long poem, I think we should have you read it because it really is almost like a thesis for the book as a whole, setting us within a certain atmosphere and an ideologic space. So I was hoping maybe you could introduce us to the two figures 
if that's not too much explaining before reading it. Um, and then if we could hear that opening poem that feels so vital to everything that comes after it. Thank you. Yes. Unfortunately, I remain one of these po poets who require extensive endnotes, which is something that Jeff Schatz, my darling editor, has been <laughs> eye rolling about since the very beginning. Um, you know, now there is an internet, so people can look up certain things for themselves. But, you know, I also want the book to be accessible. So I do still include the endnotes. So the first figure in the book is Pasiphae, who is um, the wife of King Minos of Crete. And she, um, you know, the story is that the gods send a white bull from the sea and King Minos is supposed to sacrifice the bull. He doesn't. The gods become angry and they decide to punish him by punishing his wife, Pasiphae, by making her fall in love with the bull. And she asks the inventor, Daedalus, who is then working for them, to uh, construct a wooden cow. She crouches inside the cow, is impregnated by the bull, and gives birth to the minotaur, who is then later killed by that avatar of Greekness, the hero Theseus. You know, the thing about Pasiphae is she is from this family of witches um, out of Colchis, um, who are sometimes known as the Daughters of the Sun, um, Circe is in her family, so is Medea, so if you, you know, go down is Phaedra, um, and these are people, figures who are thought of as magical, taboo, and Asian. Mm -hmm. um, and then Prince Sado is from 18th century Korean history, and he is the crown prince, and he has a famously stern father, and he gets married to this woman named Lady Hyegyong, who is amazing, and who, from whose memoirs we know his story. And at some point, he becomes insane, and he begins killing and raping courtiers. Uh, by some accounts, he killed up to 100 people. And there's very little that the king can do about this problem without creating a crisis for the succession. Uh, because if he kills Sado um, as a criminal, then the entire Sado's uh, son, the, you know, the grand heir will become, you know, will become illegitimate or tainted. Uh, the same will happen um, if he's declared insane, various other stigmas will attach to that house. So what the king does is he asks for a rice chest to be brought. And the rice chest is just what it sounds like. It's a box. It's about four foot by four foot by three foot. And he asks Sado to get into the rice chest and he binds the rice chest with rope. He puts grass on top. And about eight days later, Sado dies. So this is the poem. Study of two figures, Pasiphae Sado. One figure is female, the other is male. Both are contained. One figure is mythical, the other historical. They occupy different millennia different continents, but both figures are considered Asian, one from Colchis, one from Korea. To mention the Asianness of the figures creates a racial marker in the poem. This means that the poem can no longer pass as a white poem, that different people can be expected to read the poem, that they can be expected to read the poem in different ways. To mention the Asianness of the figures is also to mention, by implication, the Asianness of the poet, Revealing a racial marker in a poem is like revealing a gun in a story or like revealing a nipple in a dance. After such a revelation, the poem is about race, the story is about the gun, 
The dance is about the body of the dancer. It is no longer considered a dance at all and is subject to regulation. Topics that have this gravitational quality of aboutness are known as hot button topics, such as race, violence, or sex. Hot button is a marketing term popularized by Walter Kitchell III in a September 1978 issue of Fortune magazine. The term suggests laboratory animals and refers to consumer desires that need to be slaked. The term hot button implies not only the slaking of such desires, but also a shock or punishment for having acted on those desires, a deterrent to further actions pursuing such desires, and by extension, a deterrent to desire itself. Violence and sex are examples of desires and can be slaked, punished, and deterred. Race is not usually considered an example of desire. Both the female and the male figure are able to articulate their desires with an unusual degree of candor and specificity. Both are responsible for many sexual deaths. The male figure says, when anger grips me, I cannot contain myself. Only after I kill something, a person, perhaps an animal, even a chicken, can I calm down. I'm sad that your majesty does not love me and terrified when you criticize me. All this turns to anger. Your majesty here refers to the king, his father. The female figure is never directly quoted, but Pseudo Apollodorus writes that she casts a spell upon the king, her husband, so that when he has sex with another woman, he ejaculates wild creatures into the woman's vagina, thereby killing her. Although this punishment is enacted on the body of the woman, this punishment is meant to deter the king from slaking his desires. Both figures are figures of excessive desire requiring containment. Both containers are wooden. Both containers are camouflaged with a soft yielding substance, one with grass, one with fur. Both containers are ingenious solutions to seemingly intractable problems. One problem is political, one problem is sexual. They are both the same problem, they have the same solution. The male figure waits in the container for death to come. He waits for eight days. His son will live. This ensures the succession, the frictionless transfer of power. The female figure waits in the container for the generation of a life. We do not know how long she waits. Her son will die after waiting in his own wooden container. This ensures the succession, the frictionless transfer of power. There are many artistic representations of both containers. The male figure's container is blockish, unadorned, a household object of standard size and quotidian function. Tourists climb into it and pose for photos, post them online. The cramped position of their bodies generates a combination of horror and glee. This in turn creates discomfort, the recognition that horror and glee should not be combined, that such a combination is taboo. The female figure's container is customized, lushly contoured, its contours are excessively articulated to the same degree that her desire is excessively articulated. Artists depict the container in cutaway view, revealing the female figure within, awaiting the wild creature. The abject position of the female figure on all fours, pressing her genitalia back against the hollow cow's genitalia, generates a combination of lust and revenge. This, in turn, creates discomfort the recognition that lust and revenge should not be combined, that wild creatures and female figures should not be combined, that these combinations are taboo. 
The tourist can climb into the rice chest. The tourist can pose for a photo in the rice chest. Then the tourist can climb out of the rice chest and walk away. The artist can look into the hollow cow. The artist can render the contours of the hollow cow, the contours of the female figure. Then the artist can walk away. Both containers allow the tourist and artist to touch the hot button, the taboo. The desire and the discomfort remain contained. Both containers allow the tourist and the artist to walk away. The male and female figures remained contained. Neither container, the rice chest, the hollow cow, appears to have any necessary connection to race. To mention race, where it is not necessary to mention race, is taboo. I have not mentioned the race of the tourist or the artist. The tourist and the artist are allowed to pass for white. The tourist and the artist are not contained. I have already mentioned the race of the poet. But to the extent that the poet is not contained, the poet is allowed to pass for white. I have already mentioned the race of the male and female figures. The male and female figures are contained. The rice chest and the hollow cow are containers. The rice chest and the hollow cow are not the only containers in this poem. Colchis and Korea are containers in this poem. Asianness is a container in this poem. Race is a container in this poem. Each of these containers contains desire and its satisfaction. Each of these containers contains discomfort and deterrence. Each of these containers contains a hot button, a taboo. The tourist and the artist can enter each of these containers. The tourist and the artist can touch the hot button and walk away. Each of these containers separates the slaking of desire from the punishment of desire. Each of these containers is an ingenious solution to a seemingly intractable problem. They are the same problem. They have the same solution. Each of these containers ensures the frictionless transfer of power. Each of these containers holds a male or female figure. The name of the male figure can be translated as, think of me in sadness. The name of the female figure can be translated as, I shine for all of you. I'm listening to Monica Yoon read from her latest poetry collection, From From, from Grey Wolf. So we have a question for you from Claudia Rankin. Excellent. Hi, Monica. Congratulations on From From. It's such an achievement. Um, I was thinking about a question to ask you. And, you know, I was wondering, because this is something I think about for myself, does writing from a point of view that attaches to one's racialized position foreclose any possibilities, emotional pathways or avenues of creation? It's really, I, I, you know, it's really a question about subjectivity and writing. And I just wondered your thoughts on that. Congratulations again. I think that's a really interesting and incredibly difficult uh, question, as is typical of pretty much every conversation I have uh, with Claudia, as uh, much <laughs> as I love her. Um, and um, I think that the question of whether a racialized perspective in the poem forecloses kind of possibilities for insight, perhaps, possibilities for flexibility, for mutability, uh, really depend on where you think that mutability is going to occur, uh, whether it's going to occur within your own, I don't know, consumption of the poem or your own creation of the poem. 
For me, I think the subject position is already racialized. I'm not one of these new critics uh, who always seem to me to be completely unrealistic. Um, I always know, and I assume that the reader always knows, that I'm coming to the question of poetic authorship uh, from a racialized position. And for me, in a way, making it conscious or evident for the reader makes it evident for myself in a way that helps me to articulate what it is that I do and do not want to be doing in the process of the poem. For example, in this poem, I did not want to be the exploitative artist who is right, who is, you know, taking photographs of Prince Sado in the box, who is rendering Pasifai uh, in the wooden cow. Um, I do not want to be the tourist who is stepping in and out of those experiences, and especially I do not want to be the tour guide who is hawking these exoticized experiences. And so for me to make the racialization of myself as the poet explicit causes me to, I don't know, in a way uh, further open up what it is that I'm trying to do in the process of the poem. And this might come true even more so in the final poem, which is in some ways a companion piece to this one in which I am constantly questioning my position as the person who is showing you what is in the container and whether I am at any instance inside or outside of the container, whether I'm part of the exhibition. Yeah. Well, I was excited to see that you were in conversation with Dorothy Wong at Bomb Magazine, who I also want to thank. I want to thank Bomb Magazine for so often giving me access to their incredible interviews, which end up influencing my conversations. But I was also excited because when I talked with Sawako Nakayasu recently, I brought up how she had said previously that Dorothy Wong's book, Thinking Its Presence, Form, Race, and Subjectivity in Contemporary Asian American Poetry, had been so crucial for her in showing her that she wasn't as white as she thought she was. And then Sawako spoke to the importance of that book. In doing so, she referenced a conversation I had with Elaine Castillo, where Elaine said, and in this case, she's speaking about dialogues within the Philippine X community. I know that to be part of a family also often means having to fight and that fighting with your family is sometimes a way of fighting for them. And Sawako felt like that is one thing that Dorothy does. And I think of this in relation to the poem you just read, where the tourists and the artist are allowed to pass for white. The tourists and artists are not contained. And in fact, they literally walk away and can walk away. But Asianness is a container in this poem. Race is a container. I think of this when I think of something that Ngugi Watiango says, that our bodies are our first field of knowledge. That if you start from a place of finding that field to be wrong, you don't have the foundation to build from. And also when I talked to Claudia in 2014, her talking about her desire for white writers to stay within their bodies when they write to write as white writers, to in a sense be contained, to accept containment and not perpetuate 
whiteness as white space, as universal, perhaps as the ability to step in and step out. Um, but I wanted to read a couple things Dorothy said about your work in this interview as a lead into what I found to be a really fascinating response on your part that I'd love to explore. Her introduction notices, like I did, something different about From From when she says, Yoon's first three collections are accomplished and impressively controlled with a palpable sense of wariness about them. They can be hard to penetrate, not because of the numerous high culture references to Greek and Nordic myths, Proust, Antonioni, and so on, but perhaps because of a restraint or constraint which felt, well, racialized. In Yoon's latest collection, From From, something has come undone, all to the good of her. And in that same introduction, since graduating from Princeton, Yoon has had the sort of career that could be seen as embodying a quote-unquote model minority or aspirational immigrant dream. Yale Law, jobs in top New York City firms, Stegner and Guggenheim fellowships, and critical acclaim for her three books. And then she goes on to talk about performing a mastery of knowledge, something I want to return to, because I do think you use this mastery of knowledge in a weaponized way now in this latest book that I, I really appreciate. But your response to her when she brings all of this up is to say that there's also a lot of credentialing on the identity side as well, not just on the assimilation side. And you go on to talk about how the only model for you growing up in relation to Asian Americanness was an authenticity model, which you couldn't perform, as you've already alluded to, not knowing Korean language, not having spent much time in Korea. And that part of the impetus for this book came from a panel of young Korean female poets at AWP in LA. Uh, and you say, quote, I didn't want to be led down the authenticity path. I wanted to be able to write from the perspective of deracination, more a poetics of difference than a poetics of identity, which you've already nodded to earlier today. But I was hoping we could linger here with what happened in this panel, with what you think the trap of the authenticity path is in your mind, and maybe just a little bit more unpacking a poetics of difference in contrast to this idea of uh, the credentialing that might happen, not from trying to aspire as a model minority, but the credentialing that happens in, in sort of asserting an authentic identity. Yes. You see how, um, as a veteran listener of this podcast, I knew to bring a notepad to this. <laughs> I know you show, you show me the notepad. <laughs> <laughs> Six questions. Um, and let me just start by talking about Dorothy, how influential thinking its presence has been to me, to Kathy Park Hong, to pretty much every Asian American poet I know who was looking for different models. I wanted Dorothy to do that interview because her work on what it means to be a racial marker, what it means to have a racial marker, particularly with regard to um, John Yao, who is one of my most important generative influences and who is also writing from a perspective of deracination, right, of inauthenticity. 
you know, I don't want in any way someone to come away from either of these two interviews thinking that I am in any way disclaiming the work of the Korean American poets on that particular panel. I adore their work. I teach it all the time. And I don't think that they are performing authenticity. I think what I was responding to was their description of the funding mechanisms that enabled the production of their poetic works, which was they would often get some sort of Fulbright or research funding to go back to their home country and research it in order to be able to conduct a sufficiently authentic performance that it would be, I don't know, um, acceptable to a white consumer, a white consumer or a capitalist consumer who only wants to consume authentic racialized experience in the same way that they only want to consume authentic racialized food. That was what I was trying to steer clear of. This is not my home cooking and I'm not going to cook it for you. Well, part of why I asked this question in relation to containers and bodies is because paradoxically, I think resisting the authenticity trap, I think is a way to write from one's body, from one's primary field of knowledge, if we borrow that from Ngugi. Uh, I think of something you said at Cave Canem, that during your Texas childhood, when people would say, you aren't from around here, are you? That you had the sense of pursuing your own memories of that time as if you were doing so as an anthropologist with a certain distance because you weren't the hero of your own story. That what it means to be from this place and the stories that are supposed to inform that sense of placeness are not ones designed to include you. That in a sense you're disembodied in relation to yourself. And it seems like one move would be to find an essentialized identity from the quote-unquote homeland, even if one has never been there, doesn't speak the language, etc. But it seems like it could be, paradoxically, a more authentic move than the authenticity move to embrace this double space as the primary space, a critical distance from Houston but also a critical distance from Korea. And it made me wonder, I, wanted, I would love to hear about that on its, in its own right, but I also wondered if it's related to the Paul Chan epigraph that opens the book. Is there a direction home that doesn't point backward? Uh, can you speak to the sense of um, being disembodied from one's own story as well? And is that part of the poetics of writing a poetics of difference? Yes, I think absolutely. And I love that you brought up that quote, which was one that uh, a young curator uh, involved with the Racial Imaginary Institute brought up at one of our meetings um, when we were uh, thinking about nationalism and what that means in terms of identity. Is there a direction home that doesn't point backward? And to be, you know, I think the where are you from from thing comes from the experience of really being two blocks from my childhood home where I had spent my entire life and having someone say, you know, you're not from around here, are you? Um, and feeling like I could either try and prove 
one form of authenticity or another, but that both would be false. I came to the idea of a poetics of difference through Teresa Hakim Cha. And of course, dicte doesn't start with either English or Korean. It starts with French and the experience. Um, and I think that the French made this experience more physical to the reader, uh, which is what does it mean to be having the performance of this language literally forced into your mouth, literally forced into your body as a, you know, as a process of colonialization? And how can you then speak without also, how can you resist that without resisting it from a position of authenticity. Now, I think her difference would have been defined as exile uh, rather than deracination. I mean, she was somebody who, with, you know, indeed a deep co connection to a Korean homeland, which in fact her family had been exiled from for generations, first to Manchuria and then to Hawaii and then to San Francisco. Yes, and I'm interested in the authenticity of deracination, of not pretending like I am coming to a knowledge of Prince Sado because it was a story told to me in the cradle by my mother. It wasn't. It was the uh, story I discovered through the work of a white novelist. Um, and not pretending to fluency that I don't have, you know, I'm trying to learn Korean now through Duolingo It's um, and through, you know, Zoom classes. And it's very embarrassing because all of these like middle-aged white women who um, watch a lot of K-drama are much, <laughs> much better at Korean than I am and keep telling me I need to watch more K-drama. So, you know, I don't want to disclaim the attempt to recapture one's supposed home culture that colonial that processes of coloniality have stripped away from you you know the reason i don't speak korean is because of the korean war and i feel like trying to recapture that heritage on behalf of me and my son is an ultimately healthy and enriching experience but i don't want to pretend that the void isn't there and that there isn't hollowness that i know a lot of other people experience as well well, let's hear one more two figures poem. Uh, I okay. was thinking study of two figures, Midas Marigold. Okay. And as part of introducing it, I remember on Facebook, you expressing gratitude to Kevin Young at the New Yorker for publishing what you call a troubling and difficult poem and that you were worried that it would be misread so much so that you tried to pull it at one point. So tell us about the poem. And the fears that you have about the poem as a lead into reading it for us. So I had posted on Instagram that I almost pulled this poem. And in fact, I had called Kathy and Kevin and my editor, Jeff, uh, to talk over whether I should pull this poem from The New Yorker. I think my problem was I had submitted it before the Uvalde shootings and it was accepted a few weeks after the Uvalde shootings. And I know that I myself could not think about a dead child at that moment without becoming incredibly emotional. And I did not want to inadvertently trigger that effect in people. I mean, that was an initial uh, problem. And 
Kevin and Kathy and Jeff talked me down off the le- uh, ledge. Bless, uh, bless them. And as far as I know, Kevin is still speaking to me, so this is good. <laughs> um, but I think that the other question I had about the poem, which remains a more fundamental question and is inextricable from the project of the poem, which is how do you criticize both the stereotype of the striving immigrant, you know, tiger parent, as well as criticize the actuality of these striving immigrant tiger parent, criticize both the coloniality and the colonized consciousness. And that needs to be a question for me because that, in fact, in fighting with this model minority thing that, as you point out, my life in many ways exemplifies, that is in some ways the question of my life. (laughs) And, or at least of this part of my life and of my artistic process in this moment. Um, Let me read the poem and then we can continue talking about it. Just for those of you who don't know, just so I can preface it, because I think people think that they know King Midas, they don't know King Midas. Uh, King Midas is uh, from Phrygia um, in uh, Asia Minor. Um, I think according to myth, he was the son of Kybele, this um, Asian goddess who the Greeks were so worried about encroaching upon a purer Greek religion. And, you know, it's not incidental that the myths about Midas, like the myths about Marcius, are myths about the punishment of hubris. Um, And you cannot read that in a way that's inextricable from coloniality. And Marigold is... Only in Nathaniel Hawthorne's version of the story uh, does this daughter appear, Marigold. And I think it's a particularly American move to have the the innocent child, this particularly American version of innocence, uh, manifest itself as Marigold. Study of two figures, Midas, Marigold. Everything he touches turns yellow. We are meant to understand this as a form of death. Death is a wish to improve one's surroundings, which is to say to be dissatisfied with one's surroundings is a form of death. To be dissatisfied with one's child, to wish to improve one's child, is to wish its death, her death. The dead child is unchanging, therefore beautiful, which is why we say that death is the father of beauty. He created her, then he created her again. His tears gild his gaze, They harden as they hit the ground. They are a tribute scattered at her perfected feet. Unlike other forms of grief, they are durable, portable, a currency they can be exchanged for other beautiful or useful things. His weighty head lifts, a sunflower at mid-morning. The air glitters with particulate light. He takes a deep breath in, aspiration. A nebula of gold stars swarms into his open mouth. Gold spangles the moving darknesses of his blood, his lungs. Even the rivers in this country pave their streets with gold. And listening to poet Monica Yoon read from her latest collection, From From. So I want to move toward talking about my favorite section, which is in a passive voice. But first, I wanted to ask you some questions about poetics. When you were talking with Kaba Akbar for Dive Dapper long ago before this book, you said something that you've already articulated today. You say, I feel like most poetic questions are ultimately questions of tone. Form ends up being merely a manifestation or expression or a consequence of tone. 
So once I said, I'm going to free myself to be boring and dorky rather than trying to be hip or sexy or lyric or beautiful, then the form could start to take shape. And then Kava talks about how this makes the poems powerful, staggering and surprising because it's a vocabulary that poetry is not familiar with. You've given speeches on and are often asked about the relationship between law and poetry. And you often answer by speaking about how metaphor is analogical reasoning. It is what the law is. And that something like Citizen United is built upon three metaphors. Money is speech, corporations are people, and elections are marketplaces going to the highest bidder. And with From From, you've talked about a discussion you had with the artist Nayland Blake at McDowell about the ethics of power language and how they related it to BDSM practices and how this conversation with Blake influenced the tone of your opening poem. And I wondered if you could say more about power language and also how you would describe the tone of that opening poem and of the book, which to me does not seem boring or dorky it feels analytic at times but i wouldn't call it either of those um but tell speak more about power language and then how you would describe the tone of the book power language for me is the rhetorical power of law the ability to assert analogy or metaphor as if it were fact money is speech corporations are people, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, right? Um, They're all the same move. Uh, death is a wish to improve one's surroundings. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> that's never been true. Uh, but to assert it in that tone is to make it at least temporarily uh, true, is to freeze the language temporarily into a rigidity that one can build upon, to use the sort of stair-step metaphor that I have been playing with a lot. And this troubles me because I understand power language to be a language that people have differential access to, uh, according to the laws traditionally uh, and structurally drawn by power. And so to be deploying that kind of language evokes an ethics for me. And I was talking with Nayland about this at McTell. I think this might, uh, the first poem took me two days to write. About halfway through the poem, I was like, okay, I've I've invoked race at the beginning of the poem. I said that race is like, you know, Chekhov's gun is going to come back. I don't understand how race comes back into the poem. And then I swim across Willard Pond and back, and I think race is a container. These are all containers. This is what I now understand about what I've been doing. And this is what I mean about, uh, to loop back to Claudia's question uh, to me, this is what I meant about uh the fact of making yourself uncomfortably visible as a racialized subject can heighten consciousness of your process in a way that helps develop the work. But this all goes back to, to what I think I'm doing with power language. I am creating something that is intentionally artificial and intentionally not me, right? Intentionally, this is a game that I'm playing. It is a tone that is 
relatively less used, I guess, in lyric. Um, I think you could see an instance, a well-known instance of it, for instance, in Laylee Long Soldier's 38, that great poem, where a lot of the greatness of it is not in the atrocity that she is narrating, but in her determined attention to the artificiality of her tone, of her syntax, of her discomfort in inhabiting that. We have, at this point, a very well-developed poetics of othering English, of bad English, of calibinization, of using your bad English, your immigrant English as a weapon. Now, I am not an immigrant. I do not speak immigrant English. Neither does Lely as a deracinated uh, subject. And so how can we use our fluency to the same effect? How can we use fluency as critique um, to in some ways overperform English? I've been trying to work my way toward this talk, which I call proleptic form. Prolepsis in rhetoric is the anticipation of counter arguments in a in advance is, is a litigator's technique. In order to be persuasive, you have to anticipate the counter or arguments in advance. And that's what Laylee is doing in 38. She's anticipating the voices that are going to say, hey, you're cherry picking, you're hysterical, you're irrational, you're subjective, you're biased, you know, all of these accusations that are deployed against racialized and gendered bodies. How can you move beyond mere defensive credentializing and make that into its own art form. I think that Robin Cost Lewis is doing something similar in the preface to Voyage of the Sable Venus, where she is laying out as part of the poem, the extensive processes of credentializing that she's going through uh, to construct this poem. I think that Claudia is often doing something similar uh, in part in Citizen, where the determined affectlessness um, and flatness of the narration is performing tone policing as an art form, right? That sort of defensive uh, maneuver. So I have a talk about this that's currently called something like Toward a Poetics of Self-Defense. So I think I have answered the question. I yeah, am now... <laughs> you've already sort of partly answered my next question because part of why I wanted to start with tone as a first step toward your long sequence in the passive voice is because Dorothy links passivity not only to grammar but to the stereotype of Asian Americans as passive as well as to questions around gender and passivity. But I thought of a panel you were on at Poetry Studies now called Poetry Outside Poetry Studies, where you talked about the proleptic strategy used by poets of color. And you brought up in that talk, Laylee Long Soldier, Robin, Cos Lewis, and Banu Kapil. So I wondered if this exaggerated obedience to certain normative rules to show and foreground the postures that these writers are forced to adopt in the world. I wondered if you connect yourself to the strategy of prolepsis in that section. So there are two different strategies in the book, I think only one of which I would characterize as proleptic. Uh, the study of two figures poems are proleptic. They're often using that extremely authoritative X is Y therefore Y is Z, therefore X is Z, um, you know, rhetoric that resembles logic, but is not actually logic. The passive voice thing is more 
more politeness, which I think of as a different strategy, which is more understatement, uh, more trying to make palpable the sort of woolliness of the politeness surrounding you at all times. So it is different, difficult to even articulate something as primal as rage. Well, when you were at that conference that I was referring to, talking about those three writers and prolepsis, I may not be remembering this well, but I thought I remembered you talking about them using passive constructions and sort of an exaggerated performance of following the rules. These are the rules and I'm following them and I'm under them as almost an, an adversarial stance, paradoxically. Yes. You know, and this sort of like obsequiousness has always been a colonial imperative and therefore a decolonial strategy, a deep subversion um, of this. And, you know, I should have looped Harriet Mullen's work into the fold as well. And I think you're right. Um, the careful disclaimer of agency is a hallmark of what I think that this form is. Uh, the no, no, it's not just me and my racialized subjectivity uh, saying this. Uh, there is a more reliable tone that I'm trying to access because I realize that my racialized subjectivity is considered unreliable. Right. Well, as a last form and tone question about in a passive voice, before we dig into the content, I wanted to ask you what you consider this sequence formally, this this sequence that Publishers Weekly calls a virtuosic performance. And I want to ask this because you're obviously someone who thinks deeply about form. For instance, I listened to a lecture you gave at Warren Wilson on the Petrarchan sonnet, a lecture that you open with a meditation on this really weird necklace that James Joyce made for his lover, Nora Barnacle, that includes incomplete phrases of words, which together and separately have different meanings. And you use this as an entryway into the sonnet. And then you compare and contrast Petrarchan and Shakespearean sonnet and talk about how for you, you need more than 14 lines for a poem to be one. And even a 14 line poem with a turn isn't enough in your mind to be considered a sonnet. So in the spirit of thinking about form, before we talk about the long sequence in the book, in, in the passive voice, I, I wondered if you considered this a prose poem or simply prose or less simply something like lyric essay. When, when Rosemary Waldrop was on the show, this question was a part of our conversation, what prose poetry is and the ways the very existence of prose poetry sort of puts pressure on us to define what poetry itself is. So I'd be curious if you had any strong feelings about how this section is approached, formally speaking, and whether you see this section as poetry, and if so, how. I have come around um, after the fact to the conclusion that it is, in fact, poetry. That was not my intention in starting off writing it. It started off as really a day-to-day -day lyric essay that I was writing, thinking about the roots of anti-Asian hate and then the Atlanta shootings happen about 10 days into it, and it becomes much longer and much more complicated. I think about the difference between traditional essay and lyric essay as pretty straightforward, that the logic of lyric essay is associational as opposed to argumentative. Um, 
And I think it verges into poetry where what I think of as the non-semantic aspects of language get brought into play, questions like cadence and sonic resonance. Now, I think about form all the time in my own extremely weird way. And it's strange because I have no formal training whatsoever in prosody. And now I find myself a professor of English, never really having studied uh, English, except in a weird two-year master's program at Oxford that was almost entirely focused on James Joyce. So I had never done the sort of Norton anthology, English 101 um, study of English in that way. And so my thoughts about form are almost purely intuitive. And for me, form is functional. A form exists for a function. Otherwise, there's no reason for it. And sometimes the form performs a function and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that's what I was trying to get at with that extremely weird uh, Petrarchan sonnet talk. And for this essay, the form did not start off as functional, and then it became much more functional as we move deeper and deeper into the piece, and it starts to circle back on itself in the same way that a long poem will eventually do, um, if you allow it to. So let's hear a part of it before we discuss it. And I suggest a part of it because it's nearly 45 pages long. Um, really long. <laughs> I have turned down multiple offers to uh, to publish excerpts of this, given it is far too long to publish, um, except in book form, because I felt like I needed space to make the complete argument rather than a partial argument. But I'm happy doing that here because I feel like I'm giving I have room to contextualize it. Flipping through my writing notebook, I come across a sentence in all caps on a page by itself. You are in no position to criticize anyone. I have no memory of why I wrote that sentence down. Is it a self-admonition, a quote? I enter it into my search engine, just random tweets directed at Madison Cawthorn, at Ted Cruz. Is it something I said? Is it something someone said to me? The anyone in the sentence feels like dissembling, it should be a me, the sentence, a strategy to deflect a perceived attack, to make the attacker redirect their punch so that their fist slams into their own other hand cup to receive it. The sentence assumes that there are positions from which criticism is valid and positions from which criticism is presumptively invalid. Is the stooped, scrabbling posture of abjection a position from which criticism is assumed to be valid? What about the position of the one who scatters the grain? of the official harvesters who might be objects of the gleaner's envy, of the owners of the field, of the buyers of the grain, is assumed is in the passive voice. The book writes that Korean Americans were the buffer between the affluent white and often poorer black and Latino communities. The book doesn't explain what it means by buffer. A buffer is something that absorbs a blow, apparatus for deadening the concussion between a moving body and that against which it strikes. As a term, buffer is another construction that leaves it unclear who is meant to be striking the blow, the black and brown against the white, or the white against the black and brown, which is the moving body, black and brown upward mobility, or white suppression. 
Korean Americans were not the buffer for the blow. They were the instrumentality of the blow. They were the blow itself, not the leather glove, but the white knuckled fist. Everyone on the beach, whether walking or standing, keeps their eyes down, fixed on the sand at their feet. When the occasional person makes eye contact, I greet them loudly so that everyone nearby will know I'm American, that I speak English exactly like an American. I am polite. Buff is a beige color, deriving from the Latin word for buffalo. Buffalo hide is a light brownish yellow, hence in the buff, suggesting both the color and the hide. Buff leather was used for polishing, hence the verb to buff. Avoiding eye contact is one of the reasons Edward T. Chang and Carol K. Park give for tensions between the Black and Korean communities on the West Coast in the decades after the INA. The Black community believed that Korean Americans were purposefully disrespectful by not greeting them or looking them in the eye. Meanwhile, Korean business owners viewed their Black clientele with suspicion. Koreans who had failed to assimilate into American culture continued to treat their customers the way they did in Korea, where they were taught not to look customers in the eyes or count out change because it was considered rude. The two communities clearly didn't understand each other. Who is this passage trying to convince? Who could be naive enough to believe this, that failure to make eye contact was the way Korean business owners manifested their disrespect of Black customers? Not by profiling them, not by following them through the aisles, not by crossing the street to avoid them, not by overcharging them, not by refusing to hire them, not by reaching for their purses, their wallets, their guns. A buff can also be a blow from the old French buffet, meaning slap or punch. Rebuff, meaning to reject or criticize sharply, to snub, derives from still another root, the Italian buffare, meaning gust or puff. To rebuff someone is to take the wind out of their sails. A buffet can knock the wind out of somebody. In describing the murder of Latasha Harlins, the book says that Du Sunja accused Harlins of shoplifting a bottle of juice, which Harlins denied. The book omits that Du had pulled a gun on another black teenage girl several days before. The book omits that the store had a reputation for falsely accusing black customers of shoplifting. The book omits that Harlins had money in her hand to pay for the juice, which cost $1.79. She had those $2 in her hand when she died. The book says, quote, that the two engaged in a scuffle in which Dew snatched Harlins' backpack and Harlins punched Dew in the face, close quote. The book omits that before Dew snatched Harlins' backpack, she called Harlins a bitch, grabbed her by the sweater. The book omits that Dew threw a stool at Harlins after being punched. The book omits that Dew's husband falsely reported the incident as an attempted holdup. The book mentions that the news repeatedly showed the footage of Dew shooting Harlins in the back of the head as Harlins was attempting to walk away, leaving the juice on the counter. But the book omits that Dew was sentenced to no jail time for the murder, just a $500 fine plus funeral expenses and 400 hours of community service. The book omits that the judge in the case, Joyce Carlin, stated at the sentencing, did Mrs. Dew react inappropriately? Absolutely. But was that reaction understandable? I think it was. 
The book omits that the LAPD largely abandoned Koreatown during the uprising, blocking off access to wealthy white neighborhoods and bottling up Black, Latinx, and Korean residents to vent their anger and fear on each other. I stopped reading the book. In April 2012, NPR's All Things Considered asked me to be that month's news poet. You show up for the newsroom's 9 a.m. meeting. You listen as the team discusses what stories to feature in that day's broadcast. Then you have about two hours to write a poem based on that day's stories that you will read and discuss on the broadcast. I'm lucky, I guess. It's a news day rich in tropes and images. The blind Chinese dissident Chen Guancheng escaping from a house surrounded by 24 security guards. Thieves posing as women in burqas robbing a Philadelphia bank. 300 Priuses that had been purchased by the city of Miami found forgotten and rusting in a municipal parking garage quantification. The first line I write is about Latasha Harlins, the story that April 2012 marks the 20th anniversary of the LA uprising. But I write it thinking about Dusunja, how much anti-Blackness Dusunja must have eaten, drunk, breathed, to have seen an honor student buying orange juice for her grandmother as a threat to her life. Sunja is the name of my mother's best friend, who had lent me a diamond tiara for my wedding, a tiara she had bought in the 80s for her newborn son's future bride. Turns out he is a confirmed bachelor. Also, my own marriage recently ended. I think about Dew's purported fear, how she must have fed it, nourished it, cherished hopes for it, that it would grow from inkling to actuality, that it would manifest, apotheosize. Fear as congruent to desire, both cut out a hole in the self, then go questing for a shape that will fit that hole, fill it. Like the incomplete circle in the missing piece, rolling along, singing its song. I think of Dew assessing each black face, each black body that walked into her store, searching for the shape that would make her fear whole. How she taught herself to crave the weight of fear thudding into the pit of her stomach like certainty, like food. I write the line, fear is the coin dropping into its slot. I'm sitting cross-legged on the floor in a windowless office. I have 80 minutes left. Quantification. I don't feel capable of being explicit to figure out what I want to say, what I feel able to say about Latasha Harlins, about Dusunja, about the LA uprising. I pull up a rhyming dictionary on my phone and surround the line with a villanelle, a guaranteed crowd pleaser. It's a crap villanelle. I think I'll salvage the line about Latasha Harlins, that I'll write a more worthy poem about her when I have more time. That was almost nine years ago. It's been 30 years since her death, twice as long as she got to be alive. Today, a 21-year-old white man kills six Asian-American women and two other people at three Asian spas in the Atlanta area. Also today, they rename a playground in South Central LA after Latasha Harlins. And listening to Monica Yoon read from From From. So Dorothy Wong doesn't say which part of the book she's referring to when she says, I found your critiques of racial ideology and structures devastating at times. I work on this stuff, so I usually don't go, whoa. But there were moments when I gasped. But I imagine her with no evidence as referring to this 
this long sequence. I also feel like this piece returns us to questions of doubleness and is a different entryway into a, a, a different sort of study of two figures. When Dorothy Wong says, there's no way to talk about Asian immigrants or the Asian American experience as separate from the black American experience or the indigenous experience or the Latinx experience because of the relation to whiteness. Nothing's in a vacuum. And I think of Korean Americans not being the buffer of a blow in Koreatown of a blow delivered by whites on the black community, but instead being the blow itself. And at the same time, you saying all of this while talking about real substantive violence against Asian Americans, that talking about the latter in America, in Wang's formulation, and I think in yours, needs to be linked to the former. It reminds me of my most recent of two talks with Viet Thanh Nguyen. We look at the LA riots in a structural way, as you do. We look at the George Floyd murder with the Arab shop owner calling the cops and the bystander Hmong American cop, but also looking at the ways Asian American as a term has both a revolutionary and visionary activist origin and now has this reactionary representational politic also that can and does erase real deep differences in experience say between Hmong, the Hmong community or other refugee communities and many East Asians and Indians who came as high-skilled professionals. And I think my attraction toward having these sorts of double vision conversations is because I feel like as a Jewish person in the United States, the response that feels most compelling to me as the best response is, is Dorothy's response um, and yours when I, when I think of the situation of the Korean shop owners, I think of my own family. I think of my grandparent shop owners. And, and not to say that the situation between Jews and Asian Americans is the same, but I do think there's some structural overlap. And I, and I know in Koreatown where Koreans were moving, positionally speaking, into the same place as Jews were before them. So it feels like, for me at least, in my imperfect, evolving way of seeing things, that for all of the communities that aren't white, cis, heterosexual Christians, but who are also not primarily black or indigenous, whether Arab or Jewish or Latinx or Asian, it seems like holding two things at once, the real vulnerabilities we each have as communities, the real ways in different ways, we are diminished or threatened, but also the ways, because of where we're situated structurally, the ways that only protecting our own can perpetuate harm on other communities. That, that configuration, as complex as it is, resonates with me. And I'm thinking about what you say in, in the passive voice, just before the section you read, about how Koreans are able to move into the neighborhood, obtain loans, mortgages, and leases to open businesses that their black neighbors in the same neighborhood could not obtain. And it seems like that applies to many non-black communities uh, of color and otherwise. And I guess I just would love to hear more about this notion of reconfiguring the buffer 
to the blow itself and how and why for you it's important to explore the many incidents of anti-Asian violence that you do explore throughout the book in this way to link it also to something uh, something way more complex, essentially, and not primarily affective or subjective, but structural and in some ways exterior. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, just absolutely uh, fortuitously, last night I was having dinner with one of the people whose thinking has been most central to me on this issue. It so happens that the political scientist, Claire Jean Kim, who works on what she calls the racial triangulation of Asian Americans is at UC Irvine and she happens to be a poetry fan. And so she invited me to dinner last night. And so we met for the first time and talked for about four hours, largely about this. Now her new project, um, her new book, which is coming out in June and which I have been promised a galley of, which I will hold her to, is called Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World. And her argument is Asian American studies and a lot of the thinking of Asian Americans about race likes to think of Asian Americans in relationship to whiteness, to coloniality, um, which makes sense given sort of the international context, the foreign policy context. But when you're thinking about specifically the Americanness of Asian Americanness, her argument is you can't do that in a vacuum that what I call racial capitalism, and she has a much more pointed critique, she says structural anti-Blackness is constitutive of Asian-Americanness. You cannot understand Asian-Americanness without understanding structural anti-Blackness, other forms of structural racism and inequality. And the ways in which Asian Americans have been brought to this country under racial capitalism to perform two functions. I mean, first of all, to be the scabs, to be the buffers, to be the people who were undercutting the wages of emancipated slaves, the uh, wages of newly uh, unionized workers on the West Coast, uh, the wages of Latinx workers. Um, you know, Koreans were brought in, you know, first there were the Chinese were brought in and the Koreans and Japanese are brought in to undercut the Chinese. Whenever a group gets too much power, um, they bring in Asians to be the scabs. That was the first wave. And then after the INA, the second wave is brought in with a Cold War function, which is to be the model minority function and also in the service of structural anti-Blackness to say, first of all, look at how these Asian Americans, these Chinese immigrants, these Korean immigrants, these Vietnamese immigrants are thriving here as opposed to in those nations that are uh, under communist governmental systems. And secondly, to be how come these immigrants of color are doing so much better than the existing Black populations, um, particularly those who are descendants of enslaved um, Africans, and to very cynically be making that argument to try to undercut other people of color and particularly black people um, when in fact the people who are brought in as that minority uh, as that model minority wave as a result of skilled employment preferences are specifically brought in to be model minority are more educated than their home populations 
and look at what's happening today in the Supreme Court. I can barely speak about how angry I am that once again, they're using Asian bodies to beat down black and brown bodies, that they tried this case before with white plaintiffs. And then when that didn't go anywhere, they substituted in Asian plaintiffs, you know, as if we were the same thing. And it makes me just absolutely almost speechless with rage that they are once again using Asian bodies to beat down black and brown bodies, to use us as the instrumentality of racist oppression, to use us as the fist of of structural racism. You know, the breathtaking cynicism of this is not surprising at all. And I think my rage is deepened by being able to feel the resonances of the way in which this is constantly happening. This was always happening and this is still happening. And just for clarification for people who don't know, you're referring to the affirmative action case, right? Yes, the affirmative action case. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I'm, Sorry. This, is, this case is taking up such a large part of my consciousness right now that I yeah. assume that anyone talking about the case is... Um... <laughs> yes. Well, you could have written a powerful and substantive book that's solely focused on anti-Asian sentiment and violence on its longstanding history, on the recent explosion of acts. But the way you do it in a way that isn't decontextualized from structural questions, it makes me think of Christina Sharp's notion of care as shared risk. And then Yunsung Kim sort of thinks her way through Sharp's notion of distributive risk and perhaps suggesting a different sense of what solidarity might look like when she says, it might not be that we all live the same, but we might have to give things up. That's a very different way than what our movements have been. Another choice you make that I really like is dramatizing the difficulty of this. For instance, there is one poem where the people in the speaker's apartment building, a building that is half Asian, are all incredibly anxious about anti-Asian violence, which had become an entire atmosphere in the city, but who on the listserv are conflating homelessness and homeless people with mental illness and trash, as if homeless people themselves were all crazy and trash. And the speaker, who herself is also fearful after an acid attack on another Asian woman living in Brooklyn, nevertheless drafts up a letter encouraging her neighbors not to call the police on the homeless near the building, but she never sends it. And similarly, in the section you just read, how you wanted to write about Latasha Harlins, and it took you nine years to figure out how to. To me, these are really generous moments in the book that draw me further into the book, these failures to engage. And perhaps this is a stretch, but it made me think of my favorite talk of yours called Generative Revision Beyond the Zero-Sum Game. And in that talk, you start out with Elizabeth Bishop as sort of the epitome of the classical revision strategy. And you use the example of a poem of hers, One Art, which in its first draft describes blue eyes, but 19 versions later, the blue eyes are no longer in the poem. Uh, The revisionary process having erased the evidence of the past versions. And you yourself are more curious in this talk about non-normative revisionary practices, looking at 
four different strategies, looking at poems from everyone from Ross Gay to Phil Metris to C.D. Wright to Jake Skeets. But all practices, regardless of the four strategies, where the older versions of the poems might still be allowed to exist. And to me, this feels like a kindred gesture to both having a very visionary book, a book that imagines an otherwise, and one that retains these episodes of falling short in real and, I think, relatable ways to look at and also dramatize self-revision in a way. I don't know if this is a stretch, but I wondered if this sparks any any thoughts for you about any of that. Writing this, I guess we've decided to call it a prose poem, uh, was itself for me an episode and extended self-questioning. It is the most autobiographical, I think it is the one of the two autobiographical eyes in the book. I think the only other one might appear in the last poem, if I'm not wrong, but I could be wrong. Um, but um, in the experience of drafting that email and not sending it, and then in the experience of writing about drafting the email and not sending it, trying not to perform this, you know, hollow virtue signaling, right? In which I'm pretending that all of my impulses are pure and that, you know, I'm some sort of warrior for, you know, um, for a more enlightened vision of racial solidarity. You know, I'm just this Brooklyn mom going about her day, subject to I think the temptations to give in to exaggerated fear during this period and trying not to let it disrupt my relationships with the only place I felt at home. There's an episode that I keep thinking about in the essay where I describe, you know, some racist asshole coming after me um, in front of this local restaurant. And the reason I'm thinking about it is because I would go back now and revise my description of that episode, mm -hmm. because what interests me thinking about it is not, you know, the asshole, like, you know, racists are going to racist. What are you going to do? Uh, but what it said to me about belonging and solidarity, because what happens just to narrate the episode is that, you know, I'm two blocks from my house. I'm in front of a restaurant that I go to all of the time that I used to eat lunch at daily. This is during the pandemic. It's filled with outdoor tables. All of the outdoor tables are packed. And this asshole comes up to me and starts visibly confronting me, you know, this, this racist. And I'm kind of audibly trying to signal for help. I'm saying, you know, you know, no, none of this racist bullshit in our neighborhood, et cetera, trying to get the white patrons of the restaurant to help me to intervene, to do something. Um, I'm not exactly sure what. Um, none of them do anything. And this goes on for an unreasonably long time. And finally, this black cyclist pulls up and starts locking up his bike. And I intentionally position myself next to him. And what I ask him is not, can you please help me? What I ask him is literally the sentence we don't want this racist bullshit in our neighborhood, right? And so the complications of what I am asking him of that in that moment, I'm asking him in a specifically racialized way, in a way that asks him in some ways to equate our racial experience or to uh, join me in solidarity when I did not even know him. I mean, I don't even know if he lives in the neighborhood. 
and to you know unite with me against this racism and in so doing to in some ways disclaim or gloss over all of the incredibly complicated dynamics between uh, Asian people and black people in this country. And that he's willing to, you know, kind of say, you know, in a sort of confused way, having just dropped into this situation. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, right. Um, but just that moment. And I think the way in which I guess I had been affected by what seemed to me a rejection of belonging by the people in this restaurant, calling me to be, I guess, searching for a more active form of solidarity from this, again, this complete stranger who doesn't even know me. And the generosity of his willingness to respond to my question, you know, not for just help that I would ask anybody, but specifically racialized help that I am asking a Black man to give me. Um, I think is the reason that that episode continues to haunt me. Well, we have a we have a couple questions for you from other people still. Okay, um, God. And they're both interestingly, they're both interesting. I'm going to play one and then shortly after the other, after you answer the first, because they both touch on pronouns and on the deracination sonograms. So here, here's the first one from Diana Koi Nguyen. Awesome. My question revolves around the deracination sonograms, poems which felt tremendously personal, somehow more so given that they are written in a distanced third person, as if watching a home video of scenes from one's childhood. The ways in which your devised form propagated the letters and sounds of the word deracination through the sonograms felt like a tender act of resistance to the violent ruptures and consequences of uprooting. These poems literally and literarily not only break down the word and the act it represents, but allows for these sounds to take root in new words, perhaps not unlike taking parts off of a jade plant to root many more jade plants. Could you speak about the process of writing this long sequence? Thank you, Diana, for the for your close reading and for the generosity of that question. And I feel like I can see the the spawning fish figures of um, of Ghost of in, in your question and this image of the jade plant and its tendrils. You know, deracinations uh, stem from an exercise I often give my students, which I call a sonic landscape exercise, where they take a word and they break it down into its constituent sounds and really kind of go nuts on it and generate a brainstorm of words that are occupying the sonic landscape of whatever the source term is. It bears some relation to uh, Terence Hayes's work with Anagram, uh, which has been tremendously influential on me and which I kind of explicitly uh, follow in Blackacre uh, or in one poem in Blackacre. But here I thought, well, deracinations is an interesting word because it consists so much of soft, ubiquitous sounds. It's everywhere. And you don't realize that it's everywhere, that it is the air that you breathe, that you don't realize that you have walls around you because the walls are clear. And so I wanted to have something that is that first person largely, although, you know, I fictionalize a lot of it. 
And, you know, some people are writing about those poems as if they're strictly autobiographical. I mean, they're really not. Some of them are pure fiction. But to write about it from this kind of distanced, this extremely artificial and third person distance, I think allowed me to make things of them and to say in some ways, well, this is something I've always taken for granted. Uh, The opening poem of the Deracinations sequence is about how I learned to read. And this, in fact, is maybe my earliest memory. Um, I learned to read very, very young. And I learned to read on the book Curious George. And only later, when it was time to teach my son to read, did I ever look again at Curious George and am appalled to discover that it seems to be weirdly a coded parable about the Middle Passage. Um, Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, there's no way in hell that I'm reading this to my son. I am surprised that more people are not talking about this, although I'm sure that there are people who have. But the way in which that was really my first lesson in written English, um, I think in second grade, uh, my parents wanted to give me a long book. You know, we're in the American South. What's a good book? Oh, Gone with the Wind. Let's give this child Gone with the Wind. So I read Gone with the Wind. You know, I learned what slavery was before I knew what sex was. Right. I have no context whatsoever. (laughs) My parents, my parents don't really know any of the history either. They're immigrants. They just are like, oh, our kid is bothering her. Let's give her a long book to read. Here's Gone with the Wind. I have no concept of what's going on. But, you know, that the first two major reading milestones in my life were books of enslavement is something that I thought was interesting and ways in which that keeps playing out sometimes in relatively comic, sometimes in more serious ways throughout this sequence was something that I just wanted to, you know, I I don't usually write autobiographically. I don't really see the point of it. Like, I don't think of myself as, I don't think explorations of race should center around me and my experience. I think I'm in some ways kind of beside the point. And so the idea of writing just sheer anecdote, like this is what happened to me, um, is something that I just really can't bring myself to do. Uh, but I could do it in this way. And um, and that was interesting to me um, and seeing what it becomes a, a symbol of. Well, let's hear the second question, which sort of extends some of the, some of what the first question opens up. Hi, Monica, this is Victoria Chang, and I'm really excited to be able to ask you a question about your wonderful book, From From. I noticed that the first person is delayed in the book. And I've kind of felt like at the end, that first person is sort of earned, if that makes sense. And even in the second section in Deracinations, where there are a lot of narratives, a lot of that section was in third person. So uh, kind of a long winding question, but was wondering if you could talk about some of those choices. And that's really interesting. I'm actually having dinner with Victoria in two days, but it was at Victoria's suggestion that I moved the deracination section earlier in the book because she said, we need to be able to situate this perspective in something. It can't just be this drifting, vaguely authoritative asshole voice that you have going on through a lot of this. And so I thought that was fair. And so I moved deracinations up and I kind of gave it a little more prominence in the book. 
and I think she talks about the first person at the end, I think as earned. And I wanted very much, as I said, to call attention to what I was doing as the speaker and by so doing to call attention in some ways to the audience. Um, you know, like Elaine Castillo's talking about the expected audience of the book is very helpful here because I was very aware that for a uh, study of two figures, Pacifica Isado, uh, for detail of rice of the rice chest, that the expected audience is white. And how do I, again, revisit these overly exoticized stories in a way that is not reinscribing that exoticization? Um, and so I thought that in order to do so, I had to bring me into the frame in order to bring the audience into the frame and to show me showing them the box and to say, look at yourself looking into the box. Um, and I want you to be aware of that. And I also want you to be aware of me standing outside the box, pointing to what is inside the box. Uh, I want that to be a conscious part of these poems. And that's, I think, why those two poems ended up being um, being framing mechanisms, but also why I don't want to have, I could have had deracinations, I could have made it less fictional, I could have put it in the first person, um, I could have been, you know, oh, okay, here are these narratives of microaggressions, um, you know, much in the same way that people misunderstand Claudia Rankin's uh, citizen as being merely a narrative about microaggressions, when in fact, that's not what she's doing. What she's doing is very much conscious of expected audience and the way in which people's bodies being required to inhabit the you of those narratives uh, are going to fit with varying degrees of familiarity or lack of familiarity. Well, I'm sure a lot of people, when you mentioned the part about showing in the box and showing yourself showing in the box, are like, whoa, that sounds really complicated. But I think Victoria is really right that when we arrive at that poem, which has to come at the end, the, the rice chest poem, it's not confusing. It's extremely earned. And it, and it makes a deep sense that maybe if that was the opening poem, we would have no clue what you were talking about. Yeah, I don't think that poem would have made any sense as the opening poem to a book. Yeah. Um, um, well, let's hear one of the so deracination sonograms. Uh, I was thinking maybe education. Okay. Number two, education. What's the C in conduct? Brandishing the report card, her mother ranted, irate. Your teachers expect courtesy, not disrespect. She started on her rote tirade thankless, et cetera, sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. The second grader, teary-eyed, cut in. But Ma, it was just one incident. This one boy teases me every day, calls me Chinese eyes, chink. So at recess, I used karate on him, kicked him in the shins. The mother frowned, scrutinized her daughter's countenance. And did you tell him that Chinese eyes are better than American eyes? The daughter stared for a second, then shook her head, downcast. The mother hesitated, then chose to carry on. And did you inform that idiot you're not Chinese, you're Korean? No, Ma, I didn't get a chance. The mother turned back to the sink, the dishes. And don't talk like a know-nothing American kid. It's not karate, it's taekwondo. 
We've been listening to Monica Yoon read from her latest collection, From From. So I wanted to think about Diana and Victoria's questions about pronouns and distance in relation to distributive risk or care as shared risk also. You say something about your last book, Black Acre, with Kaba Akbar that leapt out to me, quote, part of the idea of Black Acre and the linkage to property is that the system of inherited property is dependent on women being the embodiment of that transaction, is dependent on women's bodies being the mechanism that ensures the stable transition of property, what lawyers call the free alienation of property. And then later, if you have had your entire self shaped and supported by this particular structure and you start to attack and dismantle that structure, then what is holding you up? That's the premise of that poem. And I think that's a central poem to the book. I keep going back to the image of the trellis, whether and in what condition the tree can survive without it. The book is full of failed trees. And I think of the pressure on the notion of the I, the individual, that you're leaning into and from from. Because I do think what is scary, not only about assuming risk on behalf of others who aren't you who, or who aren't like you, is not just the risk itself, but the destabilization of self, of the I, and the unanswerable questions that might arise around who you are if you're assuming risk on behalf of a group that isn't quote-unquote you. Um, but the flip side is your image, which I love, not of failed trees necessarily, but of trellised trees, because I think even so-called successful trees are in reality being held up to, not by trellises, but by other things, that the flip side of the fear of shared risk is something worth living for, I think. But I wanted to hear about any thoughts you have about this question of failed trees in relationship to individuality being destabilized in these poems. This idea that you've earned the eye, I think is true with Victoria, but I also think you're doing something to the eye as well. Well, I'm trying to do the same thing. And I think of Blackacre and From From as companion volumes in this sense. Um, I think in Blackacre, I was really trying to just disengage what I have been taught to desire, what I have been told that I want and what I think that I do want or what I thought that I did want and why, and really trying to figure out how to come up with alternative visions of sustenance, support, survival. And I think I'm doing something very similar in From From, which is to say, look, you know, having been raised as little model minority poster child, how can I even talk about my childhood or the formation of what count, what passes as myself while trying to call that whole process, that whole structure into question? 
you know, all of the sort of the lengthy resume thing that you, you know, preceded the podcast with, um, like all of that. And what are the silences that underlie those assertions? And, you know, what I think was important to me in education, again, was not the just random asshole calling me a chink, whatever that happened daily, but, but the assumption on the daughter's part that, well, first the assumption on the mother's part, the confidence of being able to say Chinese eyes are better than American eyes, Asian eyes look better than American eyes, and her understanding that her daughter does not believe that, uh, her understanding that the daughter has internalized uh, racial inferiority, uh, even as of the second grade. You know, I've seen my own son do that. Um, I've talked with other parents who've seen their children do that and how she chooses just to go forward because she has gone on this, the mother has chosen to go in this immigrant model minority direction. And this is the price of that. This is the price of immigration. That's what's interesting to me about the poem by later in the sequence, you know, the mother has um, so far abandoned those ideals as to be pressuring her daughter to get plastic surgery to get uh, to look more white, you know, which is an autobiographical detail. And so to think about those in relationship to a self, uh, what do you call a self? What do you call desire when it's been formed under those conditions? I want to ask you more about desire in a minute. But before we do, I thought it was interesting that they both notice your relationship to distance, the distance in the sonograms, but then Victoria's notion of earning a closeness of an eye. But it made me wonder about your discussion again with Dorothy about how she describes your work before this book is carapaced. Like when Linda Gregerson said about your last book, Blackacre, that we, quote, encounter a more expansive, undefended version of the poet than any of her previous work has led us to expect. It seems like Dorothy feels this sentiment, not about Blackacre, but about From From. And you seemed attracted to her using this word carapace. And you talk about how you have always been attracted to poets like Ray Armentrout, who, as you describe, construct these mega robot fighting personas, these avatars to do their work in the world. And it was actually an event you did with Ray when I was preparing for her most recent appearance on the show, where I knew I wanted to have a conversation with you for the show because you seem so deeply attuned to the salient elements of Armentrout's work and also the subtle ways it had changed over time you get very granular in this conversation and in a way that I thought was really satisfying you noticing that pronouns were super rare in her early work, but then start to appear and be more actively engaged with in the, in the later books. Also how her latest work seems less fragmentary, that there's more continuity of thought. And I wondered if in that spirit of Victoria's question about progression within the book, if you could do something like you did to Armentrout's career to yours on the level of poetics. If you could talk to us more in this granular way on shifts that you see book to book on the level of the line or the stanza or, or the, or the poem. 
I love the carapace thing uh, because it was something that I have always thought both about my own poetics and about Ray's poetics. And I'm really glad that you picked up on my relationship with Ray, who is a deep influence. And actually my favorite talk I've ever given was one that I gave at a tribute to Ray Armantrout, uh, an AWP that I think like four people saw that was called <laughs> Ray Armantrout Avatar, in which, <laughs> um, in which I, I overlay her work on top of these stills taken from the movie Avatar. And I kind of explain how the plot works as an allegory for her poetics, uh, which she said was, she told me was the most on point thing that anyone had ever said about her poetics. Wow. Um, she agreed that that was exactly what she was doing. You know, this is also a reason why I'm attracted to John Yao, who is always using these various layers of artifice and persona to get to these issues of deracination. The reason you have the carapace is once you get beyond the carapace, what's there? I mean, what is the supposedly tender inside that the uh, that the carapace is hiding? I have no idea. When I opened it up, it looked like this, like when you open up a bug, it's just this mess of goo. <laughs> and how do you write <laughs> from a mess of goo? And, um, and I like uh, from... I like uh, in the passive voice because I feel like that is my mess of goo poem. Like that is me really opening it up to the uncertainty and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just trying to write this out um, and to, you know, withstand these pressures using something that doesn't feel false. And I think, you know, the same in perhaps in detail of the rice chest, where I'm really just trying to say, look, I'm going to show you all of the artifice. I don't know if there's a truth underlying that artifice, but at least the least I can do is, you know, is to make the artifice apparent. Hmm. I mean, I think this is why I, you know, I was having a bit of a tussle with Dorothy, much as I love her in this, um, in this interview, because I think that she thinks that my references, my, you know, fluency, my erudition, um, are a form of credentializing. And I'm like, you don't understand, Dorothy. That's all I am. Mm. You know, like I'm like a vat grown model minority. Like, I don't know what else I am. Yeah. That's really interesting. Bef before we end, I do want to ask you about desire and the function of desire in the, in the poems of From From, because the first poem feels like a cautionary tale, very explicitly about desire, among other things. As you mentioned, Prince Sato is a serial rapist, gets locked into a rice chest by his family until he dies. And Pasifei, who mates with a bull and is the mother of the Minotaur, curses her husband for his infidelities so that he ejaculates poisoned creatures into his lovers, killing them. And you've talked, as you have here, here and elsewhere about how the Greeks defined Asians as decadent, sexual, irrational, and taboo. And in that first poem, you talk about the origins of the word hot button and the ways the desires of laboratory animals are manipulated and shaped. And then if we leap forward to near the end of the book, you talk about Yusuf Komanyaka's poem, Lust, one that ends with the lines, he longs to be an orange to feel fingernails run a seam through him, which comes after a long list of longings in that poem with similar syntactical structure, to be formulations, which are not in the passive voice. And you say, I read the poem again, 
It's the only version of desire that doesn't disgust me right now, that doesn't make my stomach clench up or make the spit run sour in my mouth. Maybe it's enough for me for now. Talk to us about desire and I guess by extension, disgust uh, in, in this collection, which is bookended by these very um, pointed explorations of desire. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are two notions of desire at play in the work, one of which is my personal desires and the way in which I come. And, you know, Blackacre was entirely about this, the way in which I distrust what it is that I want because I think that the reasons I've been taught to feel that I want them are themselves, you know, horrific and toxic and, you know, and whatever. And that process continues through from, from, uh, is just this time I make its racialized origins explicit. And then there's the sort of desire I'm talking about in the, in the passive voice essay, which is the desire of the objectifying gaze, right? Is the desire that's referenced in that canon poem you were thinking about having me read in which, you know, the woman finds out that her boyfriend has been watching videos called Naked Asian Naughty Hotties Taken in the Face, you know, and, you know, and how you deal with that sort of objectification and being told your whole life that you should be considering that a compliment, that you should be considering being treated as a sexualized object, as some sort of, you know, under capitalism, a proof of your worth as a commodity. And how you try to get beyond that to what you think of might be a legitimate notion of desire. Um, you know, and what I didn't get into in um, in the passive voice essay is, the way in which this plays out in the history of Korea um, and the gender politics of contemporary Korea um, and post-war Korea and the normalization of sex work and race and rape culture and, you know, where you have a country that at one point 25% of the GDP is prostitution, um, how you come to a an understanding of desire that seems non-commodified, right? Um, and so I think that's what I'm thinking about. And that's, you know, what I think a lot of Asian women were feeling around the time of the Atlanta shootings, you know, all of these men telling us that we should be taking this as a compliment. Mm. Um, and just the almost unbearable rage that would result from that. Um, well, let's end with a poem from the section we haven't discussed. I was hoping you would introduce us to the figure of the magpie <laughs> and, and talk about the many parable of the magpie poems as a set. And then maybe we can go out with parable of the magpie in the West. I was just talking yesterday with a friend about how if I get a tattoo, it's going to be a magpie tattoo. But, you know, magpie in Korean is uh, kachi, which is very similar to the word for together in Korean, which is kachi. And um, in the East, the magpie is traditionally uh, an omen of good luck. Um, often there's this kind of series of famous Korean paintings called the, um, the Tiger and the Magpie. And in it, the tiger is the kind of corrupt 
but powerful traditional aristocracy of Korea, the Yangban. And the magpie is the, um, you know, the rest of the population, the peasantry, and the magpie is always getting the better of the tiger in some ways. You know, the magpie has always been kind of a mascot uh, to the Korean people, and it is the the national bird of Korea, whereas in the West, the magpie is always seen as possibly satanic, uh, certainly a thief, you know, a, a hoarder, you know, the whole like, you know, oh, you're covetous like a magpie, the whole, you know, uh, plot sequence that focuses around that, starting with the Rossini opera, uh, La Cazzaladra. Um, and the fact that that seems entirely to be a fiction, that in fact, magpies don't like shiny objects. Um, and <laughs> this has just been something that people have, or Europeans have credulously believed for as far as I can tell, centuries without really questioning it. Um, and the way that played into, in the West, uh, the domestic magpie, in America, the domestic magpie population was hunted to near extinction because people thought that their picking insects off of cattle meant that they were eating the cattle, devouring the cattle, drinking blood, that they were vampiric in some ways. Wow. And they killed hundreds of thousands of them. I mean, literally there was a bounty on magpies, like a nickel per dead bird or egg. Um, and it was only, I think when the Migratory Bird Act, sorry, this is, as you can tell, I did a lot of research. I love that. it. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's amazing what like Google searching will get you. But um, it was only when the magpie, Migratory Bird Act was extended to cover magpies that the slaughter stopped. Um, and I like the parables because parables uh, give you the opportunity to be explicitly didactic in a way that I had had to hold myself back from doing. I was kind of interested in the cadences of the, for example, the King James Bible uh, version of the parables and the artificiality, but the authority of that language. You know, I was raised uh, very religious. I went to Catholic school for, um, you know, through high school or at least for, for my high school for four years in high school after leaving the terrible um, public school where most of uh, most of the deracinations and sequences set. Um, you know, I responded in some ways to the cadences of biblical language as being another one of these languages that I had been forced to inhabit. Parable of the Magpies in the West. And the magpies flew west and came to a land where there were many flocks and herds that were ill-tended and diseased. And the magpies said to each other, indeed, this is the place we have been seeking and here we will make our home. For here there is food for us, consuming the vermin that so torment these animals and open raw wounds in their tormented flesh. And this will be our work and the service we offer to the Westerners, and therefore they will welcome us and reward us richly. And the magpies tended to the herds, and therefore the magpies found their work and raised their children, and other magpies came to join them. And the Westerners watched the magpies, and at first the Westerners were glad in their coming, for the care that the magpies gave to those among them so long uncared for. And therefore the magpies walked proudly among them, and the magpies had neat black coats and neat white shirts, and the magpies nodded their neat black heads and called to each other with loud voices. And then some Westerners hated the magpies and said to the others, see how the dark hands and dark mouths of the magpies are ever wet with the blood of their work and their food. 
Surely, therefore, these magpies are unclean in their ways, and therefore we should not suffer them among us. And then a sickness came upon the land, and many died among the Westerners and also among the magpies. And those who were sick were cared for by the magpies. And still some Westerners hated the magpies and said to the others, Surely the sickness came to our lands with the coming of the magpies, and surely, therefore, the magpies have brought this sickness to our lands through the uncleanness of their food and the uncleanness of their ways. And then some Westerners hunted the magpies. And some of the magpies cried out and said, Why do you hunt us? Are we not those who care for you, even in this sickness? But other magpies answered them and said, But has it not always been so, you who have chosen to care for those who are not your own? Thank you for being on the show, Monica. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking today to the poet Monica Yoon, the author of From From, from Grey Wolf. been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Monica Yoon contributes the reading of two mesmerizing long poems for us, one written for the Poems for Political Disaster Anthology, and the other called The Parable of the Magpie's Nest. These join bonus material from everyone from Ayad Akhtar to Teju Cole to Jory Graham, to Victoria Chang, to Ada Limon. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community, including collectibles from everyone from Ursula K. Le Guin to Mary Kim Arnold, the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you, in addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm with future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle, whose book God Themselves is out this month, in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.